I ended up making a lot of difficult decisions. I went full time on it. We burnt through savings. We burnt through our investments. We burnt through everything we had. I had been talking to a company for some time. A lot of venture investors that I was talking to were telling me that if I was able to show that I was getting some traction on a deal, they would consider investing. But I, I remember him telling me, Google bought us because they want to do what you're thinking about doing. And when they made that acquisition, it was like, oh no, this is now gotten different. And so it was at that point where I was like, okay. You've been across the whole value chain when yeah. it comes to entrepreneurship from like being a product manager, being an investor, advisor, yeah, yeah. entrepreneur. Where did that drive come from to want to sample everything as it were? It's a big question. Um, I think, you know, we've been doing more and more discussion around kind of neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. And I do think more and more I think about it, you know, there's probably some of that kind of going on with me um, in terms of you know, just having itchy feet, mm. you know, kind of wanting to be constantly learning, wanting to be constantly doing, you know, being easily bored. And, and you know, it's almost like sometimes I feel like if I don't have a lot on my plate, I don't get stuff done. I see. And so like being a lecturer alongside being an investor, alongside thinking about entrepreneurship, alongside writing, alongside listening to podcasts, alongside trying to be, you know, a good dad, a good husband, all of that kind of stuff means that I'm constantly thinking and going. And I think that's kind of like default. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that works for everybody, right? I think for a lot of people, you know, kind of focus is important. For me, it's hard to focus unless I have um, a, lot a lot to do. Interesting, interesting. Mm. And because you're, even though there's like that segment of, say, your career, but you actually studied human sciences or biology. Yeah. Well, I said kinesiology. Kinesiology. Human kinetics. What is that? <laughs> so um, kinesiology is the study of like movement. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of health professionals, particularly in Canada, will do kinesiology as a first degree. Um, and it gives you, instead of, you know, doing... Um, biology or organic chemistry. I mean, you can still do those subjects within the university degree, but you end up doing things more like anatomy, exercise physiology. I actually also did a lot of like sociology of sport, psychology of sport alongside that. So you're doing like ergonomics, you're doing human factors, you're doing all of these things, which believe it or not, I do actually apply in some areas of my life to date. Um, but for the most part, you're studying to become a health professional. So in Canada, differently to the UK, where in the UK you can, you know, from secondary school, you can go into being a doctor and studying medicine. In Canada and in most parts of the US as well, you'll have uh, a primary degree before you specialize. I see. And so kinesiology for me was a good alternative to doing a core sciences um, degree. It got me, you know, kind of working with cadavers super Oof. super early yeah. on that side and it was it was informative because instead of you know being in a lab where i'm studying biology and chemistry and then thinking do i want to be a doctor it gave me some practical experience early on to the point where i realized i didn't want to be a doctor <laughs> and you know it wasn't for me as well like kind of life decided and i decided at the same time it's kind of like yeah this isn't gonna work yeah yeah um so doing that degree was a good primer um, and it opened things up. I mean, um, what happened to me in the 90s while I was studying was that um, I actually my sociology of sport professor you know, wanted to put her slides on the internet. 
And in a class of health science students, who are you going to get to put slides on the internet? Mm -hmm. Well, here's this guy who's been learning about the internet in his spare time. So I volunteered and I kind of built her website where she was putting her slides from the sessions online. And that kind of like got me into, you know, kind of having some experience of working for people to help them, you know, kind of build product mm -hmm. in that sense. For her, I was like, okay, the students are your customer. Let's figure out a way to help them kind of see the slides, download the slides, access the slides, see your notes alongside that. And it's, it's funny because that kind of like was an impetus to my career. So even though I studied health sciences, you know, some of the things around concentration, human focus, ergonomics still play a role. Mm -hmm. But it was a good primer to kind of say, yeah, that's not really what you want to do. Yeah. In life. Oh, did you finish the actual degree? Yeah, yeah. I got the degree. I mean, it was a problem. I was considering being a doctor in first year and then thinking about like PT or physical therapy or occupational therapy in like second, third year. Um, and then realized actually it's none of this. Mm -hmm. um, by third year, you know, like I had one year left to go um, and the internet was really starting to take off. Uh, I remember losing track of time in a health sciences computer lab. Um, and the next thing I know, I'd built a bunch of websites and things like that. And it had wow. been hours and hours. The library was closing. All the lights were turning off. Um, and, and there I was kind of like thinking, oh, this is it. And, it, you know, it was my third year of university. So I only had one more year uh, to complete. Um, so I went through, got my degree, did an internship with a health organization mm -hmm. in Canada, building their website and their web products. Uh, but it gave me, you know, a good grounding in, in university to, to kind of like learn what I wanted to do. Um, and it was a little bit of serendipity, mm -hmm. kind of the internet really kind of taking off in the 90s, me being in a computer lab that had internet access. And, and then the rest is, is kind of history. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like the thing which propels, say, the next 20 years is coming from an area that you couldn't recognize, right? Yeah. Just that conversation with your lecturer saying, I need to put this stuff on the internet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, from, from that kind of background, right, like seeing that there was a health organization that was looking for somebody with a health sciences degree who could help them to yeah, exactly. think about marketing, think about their design of their website and things like that. Um, it was really kind of just lucky mm -hmm, in, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And, and, you know, I think luck is overlooked a lot of times, but it's also just being present, right, and saying, yeah, I'll, I'll take my shot. Yeah. I'll do that. Right, and then seeing what comes nice. as a result of that. Nice. Yeah. So then, how did we um, get to the UK? So, I completed my degree, and then was sending out my CV for a few months. And you know, Canada has a large number of graduates who come out of computer science and electrical engineering. So, for every role that I was applying for in Canada, there was probably several people with computer science and health sciences, or sorry, computer sciences and electrical engineering or other engineering degrees from a lot of really good universities. And so, I thought I would go back to school and do my master's, um, but had wanted to take a break. I'd never had any real downtime. Um, so, I was actually plotting to go to Latin America and go like backpacking. Nice do that and then um just on a random day i bumped into an uncle of mine in mosque who uh who told me who kind of heard me out you know he was quite successful in the business industry and he heard that i was thinking about going to latin america and he said why don't you go to london and i was like <laughs> completely, different. completely different but his rationale which kind of made complete sense was 
I have my dad's brother. My dad's younger brother lives in, in London. He's been on his own for the better part of 35 years here in the UK. Um, London's a great city. I was, he heard kind of my motivation for going to, to Latin America. And he was like, go live with your uncle for a little bit. You're a 22-year-old kid. You know, you can hang out in London. He'll take care of you. You've got some grounding, a, a base. You speak the language, yeah. right? You'll, you'll have a good time. And so I booked a two-week return trip to London. I actually had friends in London. So one of my closest friends from university, who was a couple years older than me, had moved to the UK and was building a startup. Um, and so I was coming in. Just unfortunately, he was going to miss the two weeks I was here. He was actually going to oh. be in the Bay Area trying to raise money oh. for the two weeks that I was coming uh, to London. So the first two weeks I came to London, I stayed with my uncle. I actually ended up meeting some great friends over those, those two weeks. And I thought, you know, this is a great place. And my uncle had asked me before I came to bring my CV. And, you know, this is, remember, this is 2000, right? So this paper print. Paper print um, on a seat. So I had like a, 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 not a CD. It was actually one of those discs. Floppy disk. Floppy disk. <laughs> Hard, harder versions of those floppy disks that we were putting in computers. And I was uploading it on monster.com. Wow. Right? And all of this. And I remember how in Canada I was emailing and emailing and uploading and applying and whatever else. And in the UK, I uploaded it to Monster, and literally within an hour, my, my phone was ringing. Wow. And people were like, are you available for this? Would you like to meet this company? And it was like jobs that I thought, I have no right to be considered for mm -hmm. this particular role. I remember going to Hamill Hempstead from London. Uh, you know, so I think it was like about 40-minute train ride out. And 3Com was about to spin out Palm the Palm Pilot, mm -hmm. and they were going to make a different website, and they were looking for somebody to build the product for Palm, eventual Palm.com or whatever it was going to be. And I remember thinking, I'm 22, <laughs> and they are seriously considering me for this role. And so, you know, like, even though I didn't get that role, I was like, okay, there's a lot more opportunity here. And being Canadian, it was a lot easier to get the right to work here in the UK. So I knew that, I had family, all of these kind of things. I thought I would go back to Canada and I would come back to the UK at some point. But um, again, kind of luck, serendipity. I ended up missing my flight back to Toronto. So I, uh, I got to, it's, it's a crazy story. My uncle had asked me to fix his internet connection the morning of my flight. I took off a pouch that had my passport, my wallet in it, got to Victoria Station, realized that it was still back in Harrow. So he, I had to call him. He came, got me from Victoria Station, drove up to Harrow. And by the time we got to Gatwick, the flight was long gone. Wow. So he, uh, he gave me 50 quid and said, enjoy your day. <laughs> Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. Um, and that friend of mine who was in the Bay Area was coming back that day. Uh, my uncle had also given me one of his spare mobiles, which the mobile number I still use today is wow. that, that mobile from 23 years ago. Um, and so, but I'm paying for it now, just to put that out there. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, called up some friends that I had made here. And I was like, I missed my flight. And the one-way standby was going to cost me as much as a return mm. flight. So I basically called up my mom and I was like, you know, I missed my flight. Didn't really have anything taking me back to Toronto. So I think I'm going to stay in London for a little bit longer. And that was it, you know, called up a couple friends, whatever, stuck around a month here in, in the UK, ended up getting a job offer. Um, and when I got that job offer, I flew back to Toronto, drove up to Ottawa, which is about a four hour drive, 
um, drove up to Ottawa, got a same day visa to work in the UK, drove back, said my goodbyes over the weekend. That easy. That easy. That easy. I mean, remember, this is pre 9-11 as well, right? Fair enough. So pre 9-11, Canadian, young, you know, getting a visa, you know, was, wasn't as challenging or difficult um, as it is today. So, you know, I kind of took that missed flight as like uh, an opportunity to, to figure things out. And I, I love London. I love the energy. And growing up in Toronto, I always thought I'd end up in a place like New York. Mm-hmm. Um, but coming to London, you know, kind of just made it feel like, okay, home. Yeah. You know, it, it, there was a, a vibe to the city at that time that, that kind of I really enjoyed. Yeah. And, and I haven't looked back. Naturally, when you miss your flight, it's like the end of the world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you could blame me and then you could be blaming your uncle. Yeah, exactly. Right? Your uncle's like, please, <laughs> take this money and go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and it wasn't that. I mean, I, I realized it, you know, it, it was nobody's fault. It was yeah. my fault, if anything else, right? Not putting that thing back over my shoulder. Mm. No, and being thoughtful about where is my passport, mm. right? And all of these things that I should have kind of, and taking ownership that, you know, this, this has happened. It's on me. And yeah, and I think um, I could have looked at it as a, a negative, but I think, and this is something that I've kind of held on to and something I tell younger people quite a bit is like, when you're young, you should be looking at everything as an opportunity, right? Whatever setbacks you have, whatever things that you know, don't work out or whatever else, those are opportunities, right? Like what you turn them into is up to you, hmm. right? Because they're basically, I think, that when you're young, everything should be a fork in the road, yeah. right? Like one thing's kind of turned, taken off the table means that you focus on something else hmm. that's still on the table. Yeah. And for me, missing that flight to Toronto would I actually have gotten my act together and come back to the UK? I don't know. But, you know, kind of it forced me to focus and say, okay, I need to, to figure it out here because mm. I want to be here. Especially because you, you're considering of doing a master's as well, right? Yeah, I was. And it wasn't like, it wasn't a determined, you know, like I wasn't, for example, for the MBA, you write your GMAT. I wasn't like thinking about the GMAT or anything. It was just like a thought in the back of my mind. Got it. Because this is February of 2000. And I'm thinking, okay, I've got September when another stream will start. So it'll give me some time. You know, I was thinking about, do I do a master's in engineering? Do I do an MBA at that point? Because there are certain schools where you don't need the work experience. You can just go back and do a master's. So that was kind of going on in my head at that time. Um, and I probably would have spent more time thinking about it. And who knows, right? Yeah. Like maybe I go back to Toronto and I think, oh, actually, what am I thinking about going to London? Toronto's home. I need to do my master's here. Mm-hmm. Maybe that would have been the outcome. But yeah. hey, it worked out. Here we are. Right? Here we are. Here we are. <laughs> so that first experience, um, your first role, was it um, internet manager? So the internet manager is the, like the first role that I put up. It was like a, the, one of the first full-time roles Mm -hmm. that I had. Before that, I was, you know, just being a software developer. So I was working for agencies. I worked for Bertelsmann, which is a German conglomerate. They had an agency in uh, the UK called Pixel Park. It was the UK and New York. They were doing a lot of work for different organizations. Those were all contracting roles. Okay. Um, But then you you have to remember as well, like the internet bubble and all the IPOs and everything that were happening in the US in the 90s and early 2000s started to pop. Mm -hmm. And you started to see that happening and coming across here to the the UK as well. So some of those roles, you know, started to dry up. And when the agency wanted me to go from, you know, a contractor earning 50 pounds an hour to then being a full-time employee at 30K, I was kind of like, oh, something's going on here. Mm -hmm. Um, and I took the opportunity to go and work in the UK government 
So it was part of what's now considered the Local Government Association. Uh, then was called the Improvement and Development Agency for Local Government. It was like an offshoot. Um, and they hired me to be this internet manager initially as a maternity cover, and then they gave me the role. And that was basically a product manager. I see. So, you know, government at the time, and even the internet industry as a whole, hadn't really come up with all the nomenclature nomenclature around kind of like what these titles of roles should be. So it's like, hey, we've got this internet thing, we've got a website, we need somebody to manage it. But I was really a product manager when I reflect on it, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, I'm going to build this, I'm going to be responsible for content, I'm going to be responsible for the engineering, I'm going to be responsible for the, the customer base, the readers. Uh, I was managing consultancy firms that were working for us, uh, IBM and, and others uh, as well. So yeah, it was it was a great experience considering that there wasn't as much investment happening at that point in time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, going into the public sector gave me a, a slightly different kind of lens um, to look at the industry through. Yeah, and especially another type of safety, as you were saying, yeah. because not only because of the money, but then the government's not gonna go bust because of the because of the dot com. Yeah, bust, it's funny, right? Like, mm. um, I think that was the first time that my mother felt secure about my career. I said, <laughs> you know, as as a child of immigrants, you know, having a government job felt like okay, you've got you've got something you can be secure um, around, right? And so. You know, I did that for a couple of years and I enjoyed it and met some great people, worked, learned a ton um, around kind of how the internet works, right? Because I was given like free reign to actually build stuff. Yeah. And when you're given kind of that leeway, you're given, you know, budget, you're given access to, to really smart, talented people, it, it enables you to, to do a lot. Mm. Do you remember the first thing that kind of blew your mind when it came to the internet around that period? Ooh. So it wasn't the first thing, but it was definitely a thing. Um, was when 9-11 happened. Yeah. So 9-11 happens, and, you know, remember this is 2001, and how quickly, before the news had broadcasted this, and before everybody in the office who worked in government knew, I knew mm. that this had happened. And I was sharing this information with people. And I was using, then, I believe it's, uh, it was ICQ, which is like a pre- WhatsApp, pre-Skype kind of internet chat tool. It might have even been MSN Messenger, but I'm pretty sure it was ICQ um, that I was using to, to talk to people in Canada, in New York. That same friend of mine who is in the Bay Area was in New York because Michael Jackson had just done this huge reunion concert with the Jackson 5 and everything. So he was still in New York as a result of oh, that wow. concert when all this was happening. And that just blew my mind, A, because the scale, but B, about how quickly information was being transferred, how quickly I knew, and how quickly I was checking in on people across, and how quickly I knew, for example, that you know a friend's cousin was in the building, that my cousin was supposed to be in the building. All of these things, like, I found out so fast. And now we take it for granted, yeah. right? Like, WhatsApp and WhatsApp groups, and, you know, Facebook and Instagram, and all of these things make and Slack in the workplace you know, make us not really kind of understand like how quickly it is. And when the first time that happens, it, it feels like magic, yeah. right? And I think that was the, the first time in that role. And I still remember where I was in that building in Farringdon where I was like, holy crap, this wow. is, you know, something else. And no one knew what was going on yet. You're like the first one. No one else knew. And I was like sharing this information and people were like, what? You know, and looking at the BBC and it hadn't been broadcasted yet or anything like that. And then it's like two minutes after I shared this, it's like breaking news. Yeah. And it's like, at that point I was like, okay, this is... You know, this is a serious 
technology that's going to change the way we live. Yeah, yeah. And it's crazy how like that event just reverberates across oh, yeah. everything. Like not just internet technology, but travel, like you were saying, visa, everything. Well, 100%, yeah. right? And I think like when we look at things like um, the pandemic mm. recently and we compare it to the global financial crisis 10 years earlier, we compare it to 9-11, there's, you know, these things happen, right? You kind of like have a couple of lived experiences and cycles where you see how everything kind of implodes around a major event mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. that. And that was definitely one of those which accelerated technology and accelerated our understanding of technology alongside a major event that impacted so many people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Did you feel quite, I don't say isolated, but like you were in the know kind of thing. Yeah. And so it can go one or two ways. Either people can pigeonhole you and then you're not allowed to say grow out of that box. Interesting. Or people kind of say, I'll oh, just let Bahan deal with it. And therefore it kind of accelerates your growth. Did any of those kind of scenarios happen with you at that time? Um, so I would say there was definitely a change in pre that event and everything else. And even just around that time, you know, it's like, okay, you're just doing your thing. Mm -hmm. I think that accelerated how important everybody viewed it as a platform and as a technology. So it went from, oh yeah, you're just tinkering over there and that's fine to, okay, no, we need to seriously invest mm. in this. We need to seriously commit to this being the channel for growth. And so, um, you know, I think it went from, from one to the other. And that was great, right? And I really enjoyed that. But that was kind of the thing that started me thinking on, you know, how limited am I in my capacity? Because I hadn't trained as an engineer or computer scientist. It was all kind of self-taught and everything else. You know, I had not gone back to school to do my master's that I thought about. You know, I was, and whereas, you know, today you could be an engineer and you can learn on ChatGPT. You can learn on GitHub. You can learn on all these platforms. You know, I was tinkering and you're figuring it out. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a major difference, you know, to me at least in that point in time where I was like, I don't know if I'm the right person to be kind of doing this. And also it was the government, right? And I wasn't quite sure, you know, like I was getting a lot of opportunity. At some point you're learning plateaus. Yeah. And I was kind of like, okay, I feel like my learning is plateauing mm -hmm. here over time. And is that what made you say, I'm going to do an MBA? Yeah. So um, I got recruited by one of the firms we were using from a consultancy perspective. Um, and they asked me to join them. And it was at that point where now I looked at their client list. I looked at what they were doing, their work. I thought I could do it, mm. but I negotiated the time to do my MBA alongside. Oh, so you was working. Yeah, yeah. Nice. So I did a program called the Executive MBA at London <laughs> Business School um, where I was allowed or I was working full time. And then I was also studying full time. So I had a full course load. Well, alongside that, I was actually trying to apply my learnings in my day job. How was that? <laughs> you know, I kind of referred to that point in my life as trying to juggle three balls when you can only really juggle two. Mm. So there was, you know, the work side of things. There was the MBA side of things. And then the third was just life. Like, yeah. you know, I was in a relationship. Um, you know, we were uh, trying to figure life out. Out front, I had lots of friends at that point as well. And you're like social, you know, you're in your late 20s, early 30s. Um, and so you're trying to figure out like how to juggle and really you can only kind of balance two. Mm -hmm. So at every point for those two years, I felt like something was dropping, mm -hmm. right? I felt like 
I was dropping the family or life ball when I had to focus on work and school. I was dropping the school ball when actually my best friend got married the summer and I had a corporate finance exam. And I was like, and he had a destination wedding in Mexico. And I'll remember like getting up at 7 a.m. after a night of partying in Mexico to study corporate finance. (laughs) I was like, this is not the best use of my time or the best way to be studying for this exam. Um, And it's quite funny, right? Like all of that kind of balanced out in the long run. But in the moment, you're kind of like feeling constantly feeling guilty. Yeah. I should be a better friend. I should be a better boyfriend. I should be a better husband I was uh we had gotten married at that point when I went to business school I should be a better uh you know kind of student I should be a better employee and you're just not doing anything yeah. as well as you want you're doing everything just good enough yeah yeah but I, it's funny because I feel like with life you kind of when those free opportunities are given to you yeah I feel like you just say yes yeah and you just figure it out because when you say no you don't know what you're giving up on and you're, you're like oh I could have fit it in in this little bit of slack here well, well here's the thing which I kind of skipped over on the MBA side. So I wrote my GMAT, mm-hmm. which is the entrance exam for globally kind of recognized as like an entrance exam for the MBA. And I didn't know I was going to do that well. So I thought I would write it. I wouldn't do that well. And then I would apply to a school that didn't need your MBA, your GMAT. And I would do it the following year. So this is June, 2005. So June 2005, I write the GMAT. I'd studied for two weeks. I had taken my mom to Dubai and just uh, got out of London, was studying most days, and then came back and wrote it and just wrote it on the whim thinking, okay, let's see what happens and ended up doing really well. Love it. Right? And so I was like, oh, okay. And, and then I started thinking about American schools, mm-hmm. right? your Harvards, your Whartons, your Stanfords. And went to visit London Business School. I had the brother brother of a friend who had gone to LBS and had a really good experience. He was somebody I liked. So I I gave it a shot and I sat in on a lesson and was like, oh, this is actually quite fun. I'm actually enjoying this. And then when I started talking to the admissions folks, they were like, well, you know, your score is really good. Your experience is interesting. You're quite diverse. You could probably start this September. This is June. So I've got two months. And I'm like, oh, wait, I could... You know, and you leap forward a whole year. Mm. You know, instead of starting in September of 2006, I was getting the opportunity to go to a world-class institution and start in 2005. And I had a mortgage and everything else, and they, they had offered me this opportunity to work and do the MBA. And you still graduate with the same degree. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, this is something, again, kind of that's being presented as something to you. And mm. you have to just say yes to that opportunity. Should I have, you know, kind of waited a year, done the proper application, gone to somewhere like Stanford or Harvard or Wharton or whatever else? Who knows? Mm -hmm. But I was like, actually, the opportunity cost of waiting another year, but also having a job, having less debt, all of that kind of stuff meant I took that opportunity Mm -hmm. on that front. So, you know, when I'm thinking, oh, crap, I've got these three balls and I'm not really performing as well as I could, I kind of put myself in that situation. When you put yourself in that situation, you kind of have to you know, lie in the bed that you made, right? It's kind of like, okay, I'm here now. How do I make the most of it? How do I make the best of it? Yeah, because did you know what you were going to do after the MBA? (sighs) No. It was just like you're just doing a ticker box. You know, I had an idea that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wasn't sure the space or anything else. I'm really interested in, you know, what we now know as like impact or ESG or anything else, but I knew there was something in that space. So actually I did like a second year project on measuring social return Mm -hmm. on investment And I was kind of interested in that as a space. Um, I did a competition on venture capital. I did a competition on business plan writing and all of these kind of things, right? 
but I didn't really know. I just knew I didn't want to do investment banking and I didn't want to do um, management consulting. So I was open to a lot of other kind of things. And I looked at management consulting. I looked at investment. Actually, I didn't look at investment banking. Um, but I looked at management consulting. I looked at all this stuff and I was kind of like, ah, I want to do something different. Um, and I was fortunate that I got a, a really good job at Yahoo after business school. And I'd kind of been purposeful about that. I'd interviewed with Google quite a bit and I got this job offer at Yahoo. And the thinking was like having a big brand, a big tech brand, I thought would enable me and would, I would learn in, in a large organization. But when I went into the MBA, you know, I didn't really know mm. what I wanted to do. I kind of had a longer term vision, but I wasn't quite sure all the steps. Mm. What that was that longer term vision? Longer term vision was to do something entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial, yeah. right? To build something. Mm. I kind of figured out that I feel like a builder. I like to build things, um, which, which is funny because like around the house, I'm terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same, I knew kind of from a company, a culture, something I wanted to build in that way. Um, but I just didn't know how I was actually going to get there. Mm. And business school did give me a good, you know, kind of set of frameworks, a great network and great experiences yeah. in order to kind of plan out what, what the future was going to look like. It's interesting because you're, like you said, you built stuff, right? So like yeah. when you were being a product manager, working in others other places, you self-taught yourself to become a developer, product manager, right? Yeah. And you could have applied that same learning to be an entrepreneurship where you're just saying, you know what, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. But I guess you done the, you, you played it forward because you, I remember you said that you looked at the consulting company and you looked at their bios. Yeah. yeah. Did you see a lot of them have MBAs? No, in oh, fact no? it didn't. Oh. No. Um, so there weren't a lot of MBAs mm. in that. And I also thought of that consulting company as a stepping stone. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't a place that I saw myself really kind of like being in forever. Mm-hmm. The MBA was just something like I felt internally because I felt, you know, everybody has a little bit of imposter syndrome or whatever else, yeah. right? I felt like at that point, you know, the people, what they did have was degrees in media and communications or business or economics or whatever else, right? And I was kind of like this health sciences grad who kind of taught himself how to build websites. Yeah. So I, and I didn't want to go back and do like a degree in economics or something else. And I think the MBA at that point, is, and I, this is kind of like the advice I give to people because more often than not, people will come to me and say, should I do an MBA? And I do think for a lot of people, it's not the right thing to do now. Okay. But for me then, it was definitely the right thing because it kind of gave me a lot of clarity, gave me a lot of frameworks, it gave me a lot of structure that I didn't have before. And when I say that it's not right for people now, I don't want people at London Business School right now lecture to be like, you said what? <laughs> no, what I mean is that, you know, there are opportunities and alternatives to business school that didn't exist then, that exist now, right? Learning online, doing exec ed or doing training programs, learning how to be a software developer through kind of coding boot camps and whatever else. These things did not exist, you know, at the time. So now, you know, there are still a number of people who I do say, you know, an MBA is a great degree. Like if you don't have this phenomenal network, right? If you're not kind of 100% sure what it is exactly you want to do. If you're looking for a good way to kind of like think through decision making, you know, that was something that the MBA gave me. And mm -hmm. I'm totally appreciative. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so Yahoo, um, 
What was that like? Because I still, uh, Yahoo was my first, no, was it my second? I think it was my second email address. It was my most formal email address, .co.uk, yahoo.co.uk. Yeah, Hotmail was number one. <laughs> Yahoo, Yahoo was, was a really good learning experience. So um, I went to Yahoo and it was really interesting because I had been interviewing with Google mm -hmm. um, for a technical account manager stroke product manager role. Um, and they had just started really hiring here in the UK and I really wanted to work for Google. I really liked them as a, as a business. Um, but then I met uh, an alumni of LBS who had a master's in computer science and a PhD in computer science and a London Business School MBA. Whoa. And these degrees were from Oxford and Cambridge. He had one from each. I can't remember which is which. But he had a master's in computer science, PhD in computer science, LBS MBA. Wow. And he told me that it had taken him from first interview to job offer a year at Google. Because remember, this is like 2005, 2007, super, super early days of their international expansion. They, you know, I think every job hire, every CV was still going to either Larry or Sergey to improve. Mm -hmm. So it's just taking a long time. I didn't have that time. <laughs> and Yahoo was a very structured process where from first interview to job offer, I think it was a month. Okay, that's good. Right? It was solid. It was like, here's one interview, then you're going to do this interview, then you're going to do this panel or this group interview, and then here's an offer. Mm. And it was a good offer. And so, you know, I kind of thought and, you know, did not foresee just how much the internet changed while you know, the next three, five years, but thought Yahoo had a fighting chance. I mean, Yahoo had made some great acquisitions, had some great talent. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but like Stuart Butterfield, who was the founder of Slack, um, the founders of WhatsApp, the CEO of Etsy, Chad Dickerson, the CEO of LinkedIn, uh, the CEO of Shazam when they sold to Apple, the founders of Criteria. I could go on and on and yeah. on. We're all Yahoo alum from the time I was there. Yahoo doesn't get much. No, there's no talk of a Yahoo at mafia. All. No, right? nobody but, talks about it. But there are a number of great Yahoo people at all of these organizations. So a number of great Yahoo people went to Facebook. A number of great Yahoo people went to Google. A number of great Yahoo people went to Microsoft. Mm -hmm. Right, And they're kind of scattered around across this. What Yahoo, I think, didn't have was great executive leadership. So I went through five CEOs in the two years, two and a half years that I was five, there. five, five CEOs, including Jerry Yang, the founder came back for a spell. You know, there was, um, yeah, there was like a CFO that they had promoted to CEO. There was a CEO from outside the business that they had come in. The first CEO, Terry Semmel was a media guy. You know, he's responsible for Yahoo botching the transactions with Facebook and Google. So Yahoo had an opportunity to acquire both. Facebook and Google and missed both opportunities. <laughs> and it was this CEO, Terry Semmel. How do you even live that down? <laughs> you know, it happens. It yeah. happens, right? Like, um, you know, the, the internet history is littered with failed acquisitions, mm -hmm. failed opportunities to acquire, you know, kind of investments that went wrong. So it, it happens. But what I think is more inexcusable is that when you look at that middle tier of product managers and engineering resources, Yahoo developers and Yahoo product managers were phenomenal. But it was the executive leadership that wasn't able to really enable them to succeed. You know, people were just too spread um, doing a lot of different things and not necessarily kind of really focusing. Like, we built a product that competed with a lot of the social tools that we had acquired. 
So Yahoo had acquired Upcoming. Yahoo had acquired Delicious. Yahoo had acquired Flickr. These were, you know, pretty much could have been the alternatives to Meetup, the alternatives to Instagram, the alternative to Reddit, yeah. right? We had these things. And what did we, what did Yahoo do? It kind of grouped them together as like, oh, these are our acquisitions and we're going to build a social tool. And then we built Yahoo Go or Yahoo Action or whatever it was that was an, an alternative to that. You know, it had these great minds and even Yahoo Answers, you know, and kind of what Reddit's doing now, there was a lot of similarity there. So I think what I learned was actually leadership is super, super important. Mm -hmm. And no matter how good your middle tier of engineering and strategy and product development might be, if they're not empowered by senior leadership, it can be so difficult to actually be innovative and actually execute. I mean, I knew on my first day. So on my first day at Yahoo, walk in, sit down, and they gave me access to Outlook email. And, and I was like, we have a mail product. So wait, we're not using our own mail product, we're using Outlook? And, and it was that kind of stuff that people didn't see the issue with that at leadership. Yeah. Right? That why are we using Outlook for our mail when we have a mail product? How do we expect people to use our mail product when yeah. we're not using our own mail product? So there was things like that that from the early days kind of bothered me. Now, Yahoo then offered me the opportunity to move to Switzerland on a great package. And so I, I literally remember this. I was drafting a resignation email. And how, how, how far into working with, with six months, six, six months, you're ready six to go. Six months in, I was it. I was like, I've had enough. I was, I'm done with this. <laughs> and uh, I get a note, you know, as I'm drafting this email saying, uh, Yahoo will be moving its executive leadership in Europe to Switzerland, right? People who do not make this move will be made redundant. So backspace, 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 <laughs> delete the email. I'm going to wait because I did the math in my head. I was like counting down. Okay, there's this person on top. There's this person. There's that person. There's these people. And I was like, I think I'm like at number 13 or 14 mm -hmm. in the organization, maybe a little bit higher. Um, so I was like, okay, there's a good chance. And sure enough, that afternoon, I get a note saying your job is moving to Switzerland. So I go into this and I'm thinking, okay, maybe we'll move to Switzerland. Maybe I'll, I'll take the redundancy is what I'm yeah. thinking, right? And it's always nicer to walk away with some money than For to sure. just walk away. And that's what I'm thinking. And then they give us the offer of how much they're willing to give us in order to relocate. And I remember going home and showing my wife and saying, so I didn't resign. They're moving my job to Switzerland. And here's what they're offering us to move to Switzerland. And I remember her looking at that and going, I guess we're moving to Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sure enough, that's what we did. So, yeah. you know, kind of, and it's all of these things that happened as a result of that move. So I ended up spending another two years with Yahoo. Mm. Um, All in Switzerland. Mostly in Switzerland. Came back a couple of months before the two years were up and did some consulting for the firm mm -hmm. while I was back here. But yeah, we did two years in Switzerland, had our daughter out there and, and lived the life in oh, it's been cool. Switzerland. It was, a, it was a cool experience. We definitely grew as a family. We definitely learned a lot. I you know, kind of built some really great relationships um, there. And it's, I, I love kind of living in another culture and, mm. and that experience. And it also gave me a great grounding for why I love London. Yeah. Cause Switzerland where we were living between Geneva and Lausanne, that was oh. not London. <laughs> so, so moving out kind of gave us a window into actually, yeah, we do appreciate the UK. Mm -hmm. Cause when you, when you was at Yahoo, did you, were you still like a technical mm. account manager? I was kind of, um, I was the go between from our internal marketing teams our sales teams and our development teams. So my, my technical role was figuring out how we were gonna use our internal inventory 
um, for our own products. So how do we market Yahoo products on Yahoo tools? But because, you know, kind of I'm you know, the kind of person who likes to get involved in lots of stuff, I was doing everything from we would have hackathons and I would get involved with our development teams around those and ideas for helping the business move forward through to um, on the sales side when we made acquisitions, how do we roll these out to customers? How do we roll them out for ourselves? And then how do we roll them out to our customers um, as well? So it was this really weird kind of majorly matrixed organization from a marketing perspective. So I was a technical person within the marketing team. Okay. Uh, yeah. And it was, a, it was a great experience. And it actually kind of led me to, to build my first company because I saw some weaknesses in terms of how people were buying digital media mm -hmm. from a marketing perspective, which I saw as an opportunity to, to then say, okay, this can be the entrepreneurial thing that I want to do next. What made you decide to build it rather than externally rather than internally i tried to do it internally okay so i pitched it internally over and over again and i think at that point yahoo was quite acquisitive but not really great at kind of building tools from the marketing perspective so from the consumer perspective really great at kind of building great tools and great products for business for you know whether it was yahoo dating yahoo i think match or yahoo um, from page or the search or all of these things from a consumer perspective, willing to innovate, willing to build. From a core technical marketing perspective in terms of digital media and digital marketing, which was how we were making money, um, Yahoo was more acquisitive. Mm -hmm. So it was like, oh, somebody else is building something, let's bring them, let's buy them. and buy them. And so you know, I had this idea, which was a what's now called the demand side platform. And I had this idea about like how people buy media leveraging kind of Yahoo assets. And it just didn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, one of my managers told me, I think you, if, you're gonna, if you really want to build this, you're going to need to build this outside of Yahoo. And so that's what I decided. So you had enough conviction to say, you know what? Yeah. I'm going to do it myself. Well, I mean, I was, I was done with Yahoo anyways. Like mm -hmm. I said, like I was ready to leave after six months, right? I mm -hmm. thought, you know, I'm pretty smart. Got an MBA. I've got, you know, two years at Yahoo now. If it all fails, I'll, I'll get another job. Yeah. It'll be okay. Yeah. Um, so I thought, okay, it's, it's a safe bet. Also, like, you know, I wasn't expecting to have paid off all of my business school debt and everything and have savings that early in post-business school. Mm -hmm. So moving to Switzerland had given us this kind of like, almost like an extra life in the game of life. <laughs> right? If you think about it as, as a game, it's like, oh, we've got an extra life here. Yeah. Maybe we can use it and do something. That's cool. So, so I did. So then when you were like preparing to quit, how did you prepare? Like, did you just, did you have, give yourself a timeline of say like three months, six months or more sudden than that? No, I mean, so um, the move to Switzerland had said, you know, to do this for two years. Okay. We were at like month 18 of that. And I started to have conversations. I think we were also unhappy in Switzerland at the time. We had a young child. We didn't have mm -hmm. any family, didn't have many friends around. So it was personally kind of quite daunting. So from a personal perspective, we wanted to move back. So what I did was I offered to move back, but also spend some time consulting with Yahoo. And they were game. So they gave me some good consulting opportunities for a couple months. So, so when you say consulting, as in they just hire you back as a consultant? Yeah, yeah, it was like on a day rate. Wow. So they hired me back on a day rate in order to help them with social, right? So now this is 2009, 9, 10, 9. Facebook is just kind of growing on that front. They're starting to think about like, how should they engage with Facebook? So I'm kind of looking at some of that in Europe, mm -hmm. um, just helping them kind of think about social media. How would you, how do you convince them? Because they could have just said, no, we want to keep um, you internally. 
Yeah, I mean, they they did try. I think they knew that I had the entrepreneurial bug mm. that I was going to do something. And so I think like they knew the alternative was just let them go altogether. But you know, you build relationships, and also partly for me, it was downside protection. Yeah, downside risk protection, right? It's like keep working with them, so I keep getting a day rate, and that way I'm not you know kind of burning cash mm-hmm. too much before we raise money on that front. That was the intention. Um, so we did it that way. Mm-hmm. I do not recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, kind of um, trying to do so many different things and building a company. Building a company is quite consuming, um, especially as I was on my own. I, I did a bunch of things wrong in my first business that they don't teach you in business school and are very hard to learn unless you're in it. Things like distributed teams at that point, really hard to kind of mesh and build and be on the same page. And everybody was doing it as a side hustle at that point. And it's really hard when everybody's doing it as a side hustle. Um, so, yeah, so I've just learned a lot and kind of uh, moved forward. I don't know if I structured it in terms of like, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to plan for that and then I'm going to leave Yahoo at this point and this is going to happen. It was all kind of just happening. And it was like, you know, when you're like on a downhill ski slope or snowboarding or whatever, and you start to lose control and you're still going in the right direction, you're just not in control. That's kind of how it felt for me. For the whole entrepreneurship experience. I would say definitely in the first year, it definitely felt like I'm going downhill and I'm just going to roll and hopefully I don't break anything and I'll get down. I think over time, the entrepreneurship journey started to feel more controlled. But in that first instance, that first year, it felt like it was a little bit out of control. Mm. How do you balance it in, in terms of relationships as well? Because you just moved your wife out to Switzerland and then you're saying, we're coming back, but I'm quitting. Lots of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> no, relationships, I mean, it's, it's hard, right? And, yeah. um, you know, kind of, I think, I don't have the data to hand, but I think if you look at kind of like the the propensity for entrepreneurs, whether they're successful or not, um, to end up divorced quite high. Mm. And I think it's hard because like um, entrepreneurship is, is all consuming. Yeah, it is. Um, and so, you know, kind of thinking through and being a good dad and being a good husband and being a good founder, I think is really, really challenging. And I don't, I, anybody who tells you they've got like the playbook on how yeah. to do that well, yeah. yeah. I think you have to have a very supportive partner. Yeah, I and agree. I, you know, kind of the the person that you're going on the journey with, you know, having their support and them being super supportive. Mm-hmm. And that's something you just can't control it for, especially if you think, you know, kind of early on. You know, I think my wife kind of knew I would do something entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. but I don't think she knew exactly what that meant. Yeah. Right. And how kind of chaotic that was going to be for yeah. both of us. Yeah. It's because like, you're not even yourself anymore right totally. yeah <laughs> totally. you used to be have structure but now you're a bit more erratic you're a bit more like all over the place oh yeah yeah and it's hard right like you've got all of these issues you're, you're the stress levels are next level which is why like you know when a lot of venture investors now haven't been entrepreneurs or haven't been operators you know i think they might get the theoretical side or the operational side but i think the empathetic side yeah you know, the emotional side of the toll of what it takes to be an entrepreneur on an individual, that's something that's really hard to replicate unless you've actually done the entrepreneurial thing yourself. So 
with um, Ad Avengers, right? Yeah, yeah. So did you get to a point where you said, I'm going to go full time with it? Yeah. Or how did that So we raised some angel about? money. Oh, you raised, raised venture money? Yeah, we were, not venture, we raised angel. Okay. And that was enough. UK, US? UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went through Seed Camp, and this was before Seed Camp was structured in the way it's structured. Um, so Seed Camp at the time used to do, you know, the week, you, if you're a good company, they'll bring you in, they'll give you exposure, whatever else, and at the end of the week, they would be deciding who they would invest in. This mm-hmm. is super early. Now what they do, they don't do the weeks in as much anymore. Um, and now they make the investments before kind of exposing people to the seed camp process. But yeah. at the time, you know, this is like one of the first early batches. Um, and I remember Carlos, you know, kind of talking to me about what their terms would look like. And it was less capital for more equity than an angel was in offering me. So I ended up taking this angel's capital. And it was a slight, you know, I kind of kicked myself around that. Because now I know kind of the value of the network and yeah. everything else. And this was a friend, friend of a friend, and they didn't really have the experience of backing tech companies. They had lost money in one other deal, and we weren't part of a portfolio, you know, a good portfolio. We were part of one or two companies that they were making as a side bet. Yeah. And so, you know, I ended up making a lot of difficult decisions. I went full time on it. We burnt through savings. We burnt through our investments. We burnt through everything we had on that front. And um, yeah, ended up taking that company to the wall. Wow. And having to put it through administration, which is not fun. That must not have been. No, it was, it was terrible. We, uh, st- I started the company when my daughter was a couple months old, and I had to put it through administration like the week my son was born. Wow. Yeah, four years later. It was terrible. It was so awful. Yeah. It was so awful. But, it, you know, like, you build resilience. You're here on the other side. And you, you kind of have to live with the mistakes that you made. And if I could go back, I would do a number of things differently. Mm. But I kind of call that my PhD in business. Right? Yeah. Like, it was like a time where, I learned a heck of a lot by making a lot of mistakes. Mm. What made, how did you know, like, because when you're, when you're ambitious, right? Yeah. And you have it your way in a sense that you like to do a lot of different things, yeah. then you can be very optimistic with life. So even when things aren't, say, turning out the way you want it to, you might still be saying to yourself, okay, no, it's going to turn around. It's going to turn around. It's going to turn around. At what point did you say, I'm done with this? Yeah. So there was a time, so I had, I guess I can talk about this now. Um, I had been talking to a company called AdMob for some time. And AdMob was going to be a partner in what I was building. Or we had been talking about building this partnership. Great guy, Russell Buckley, was heading up AdMob in Europe. He and I had been talking about my vision for what I wanted to do. Having a mobile partner was crucial. A lot of venture investors that I was talking to were telling me that if I was able to show that I was getting some traction on a deal with AdMob, they would consider investing. Mm. And then AdMob got acquired by Google for a couple, I think it was a couple hundred million. Um, And Russell, um, I can't remember if he called me or if we had a coffee or what, but I I remember him telling me, Google bought us because they want to do what you're thinking about doing. No way. I was like, okay. And it was that point where I was like, this ain't gonna work. Yeah. So, um, and had mo- I was thinking about pivoting, didn't really have that much capital to give back to investors, you know, and burnt through most of the cash. 
So it's one of these things where, you know, kind of it happens really, really slowly and then it happens all of a sudden, mm. right? I'm sure Google had been acquiring other companies. You know, I'm sure Google had been thinking about this and plotting and building, you know, platforms in order to simplify ad buying for their customers. Why wouldn't they? Mm. And when they made that acquisition, it was like, oh no, this is now gotten different. Yeah. And so it was at that point where I was like, okay, this isn't going to work. We need to figure something else out. Well, how did you pick yourself up from that? Well, I, I mean, I probably went into a really dark place personally, right? So there was a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and a lot of what have I done? What have I put myself through? But at the same time, I just had to go into activity mode because yeah. I had, you know, we had a young family. Um, my wife didn't really take maternity leave because we were leaving Switzerland and coming back here. Um, and we had the second kid and she had started doing baby sign language and stuff like that. So it was like, got to do something. Mm -hmm. Ended up borrowing some money from family and stuff, which was super painful and was, you know, kind of interviewing with large companies again yeah. and going back that route and thinking, I've just got to get a job. And, you know, the thing is that at that level, you know, things take a little bit longer. So I was talking to Facebook, I was talking to Amazon, I was talking to others and they were taking a really long time. But I knew I had to do something. Mm -hmm. um, and I was quite fortunate in that a friend of mine who's a venture investor had a portfolio company that needed some help. I caught up with him and he said, why don't you just do a day rate consultancy gig for us and go into this company because you could really help them. Mm -hmm. So I did that. And you know, that was one of the nicest, most solid deals or solid things that anybody in the venture industry had done for me. And it basically saved me. Mm -hmm. You know, it gave, kept me in entrepreneurship, close to early stage companies and all of that. And it enabled me to, to kind of like restart on that front. And it probably taught me a lot and it kind of built a lot of empathy and humility yeah. that, that hopefully I'm able to, to put into practice mm. now and you know, over the rest of my career. No, for sure, man. I mean... That's a, that's how it got to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. Like, yeah, no, it I, it's, it's um, because it's like that word failure, right? Yeah. And the knowledge that sometimes timing is everything. Yeah. You know, and you just need most so many. Times, most, most times, most time times, is everything. timing is everything. Yeah. You need the timing, you need the luck, you need the team, you need the things. Like all these little things come into play and people don't really see that no. aspect of it, you know? And that's why I think when you have advisors, yeah. investors such as yourself, and you have the advantage point of seeing where things can go right, but sure. also seeing if things can go wrong, it's yeah. like that's valued and sage advice, you know? Yeah. Um, but, also, but it's always that, that piece as well, like having to tell your investors or tell your family that this isn't working. working. Um, it's tough. Yeah, and my wife was super supportive. You know, she, I remember, because I had another friend, Vinay, who started a company called Whipcar, which was basically like a get-around, mm -hmm. um, but probably way too early. I think I've heard of that before, yeah, actually. Yeah. yeah. So he, he built Whipcar, and both of us kind of ended our entrepreneurial journeys around the same time. Mm -hmm. And I remember she did like a Father's Day kind of like, not party, but she kind of like cook baked cupcakes and we had tea and we had two little kids and she invited Vinay over and she was like it's kind of like a celebration yeah you know? it's like the end of one journey and a start of hopefully something new and i think it's super important right like to have a partner who's supportive yeah but even then like it's really difficult 
you know, you hear the words failure and you think failure. And I think there needs to be a better kind of terminology, right? And I think a lot gets made about the U.S. culture, the American culture around kind of, you know, failure as taking a swing. Mm. And I think there's something about that, right? Where it's like, okay, you took a chance. Mm -hmm. And I think we're getting better at it Mm -hmm. here in the U.K. around kind of respecting founders for having given things a go. Um, but at the time, it was... It's not like that. It's not. Because this, this is like mid-thousands, like mid, like 2013, 2014? Yeah, it was 20, yeah, it was 2012, 2013 yeah. that I put that company out to pasture. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so my son was born, yeah, it was 2013, 20, yeah, 2013. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially at that time, that's when the real startup culture is beginning. It's beginning. Yeah. It's beginning. You know, we had just come out of the global financial crisis, which was another thing around, like, luck, right? Mm-hmm. Like, who tries to build a company when the going through this global financial crisis. Mm-hmm. So that was hard. Um, but yeah, we're starting to see this boom. We're starting to see companies get funded. You're starting to see more and more activity. You're starting to see, you know, kind of proper venture investors coming together and building good funds. Mm-hmm. You're starting to see that, you know, kind of entrepreneurship being something. You're also starting to see like younger entrepreneurs get some success. Because yeah. I do think that's something about the UK around kind of entrepreneurship before 2013, maybe even a little bit before that, you'd get entrepreneurs who would hit it big and then they'd go and move to like the south of France or yeah. they'd move to, you know, kind of the, the islands or they'd move to the US or whatever. Now you were having entrepreneurs who were doing well and then they were coming back and reinvesting, you know, their returns into the next generation of entrepreneurs. Mm. And I think you need a couple of those cycles yeah. in order to really kind of build a culture. I agree, I agree. So how did you go about like rebuilding your identity? Oh. Because... Obviously, you were going through that time saying I'm a founder, and then now you're in another organization. Like, how did you, like, how did you re- rebuild to say like these are my skill sets? This is what I'm known for. This is what I'm good at. Yeah. So, you know, just taking those opportunities. So Hussein Kanji, who was at Hoxton Ventures, gave me this opportunity to go and work at this company, Tesoro. I kind of initially started as a contractor, eventually became the CEO at that business, and helped you know kind of restructure that company. Eventually, it didn't work out, but I had left. I was like, I had done my part. I felt like I'd helped that company. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you kind of need to go from the frying pan into the fire, right? Yeah. That's kind of what that was. It wasn't my fire, but it was an opportunity to say, oh, wait, there's other messes out there for me to clean. So I went and did that, and then it was kind of like, okay, that was really painful, but it wasn't my pain, and I can move on for it, mm-hmm. from it. Um, you know, it was really hard. It was a husband and wife team. The husband had to fire the wife or get rid of the wife in the organization. And they, the wife, you know, the marriage survived, but the business didn't. Yeah. But that wasn't my fault, right? <laughs> I felt like I had done well. I had done good for that organization. I moved on um, and then went and joined a company called Peer Index. Now, Zim Azar, who was the founder of Peer Index, he had started that company around the same time I had started at Avengers. And it's funny because I remember meeting him in Paris in the web and him telling me about what he was doing and me telling him about what I was going to do. And we both kind of picked each other's businesses apart Mm -hmm. and we were both right. And then years later, he was still going. And so I came in to help him pivot and help him grow that business. And, you know, kind of, again, it's this saying yes, like uh, Russell, who was, and this is the thing about like, that I like about like thinking about things as not um, a a one-off game. Like, people come back into your lives. And so Russell, who was at um, AdMob, was now the chairman of this company, Pure Index. Wow. Yeah. 
So I had a frank call with him. He put me into the position. They had other venture investors, including Anthemis, which I then went on to join after Pure Index. And um, yeah, it was like, okay, let's, let's do this. Mm -hmm. And I helped that company pivot. I helped it raise money. Eventually, we exited that business to Brandwatch. You know, so it took a while, but you get these kind of like, um, you know, it's funny when you think about a game, right? Like I think gaming is a really good analogy for some of this, right? You fall off mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it's like the game's over. over, but you start back, yeah, right? At the point where wherever the game restarts you from and you have to kind of build back up, mm. right? And I think in that case, from, a, yeah, from an LBS MBA, from an uh, Yahoo, from an entrepreneurship experience, and then when my company went under, it was like, oh, restart, and you're gonna start back here mm. and have to kind of build that career back up. And so it took some time, but I think when we exited Peer Index, it kind of felt like, okay, I can do this again. Yeah. It felt like a little bit of rebirth of my own, you know, kind of ability or the, my own sense of ability. Mm. Now, I think it was always there, but that was kind of the properly the first time where I felt like, okay, I can't, I can't do this. It's a big win, especially to get the exit. I, I mean, mean, don't yeah. get me wrong. It was not like a game changing, world changing, you know, it didn't mm. give us FU money or whatever. <laughs> But it was a really difficult situation. I think the investors had basically written off the investment and for them to see that they were getting some return at some point, mm -hmm. you know, was a huge kind of outcome from that perspective. Yep. You know, so even though it didn't change my life from a financial perspective, like hugely, what it did do was it gave me like an, an you know, kind of an outcome where mm -hmm. I can say, I can point to that and say, yeah, I helped make that happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was super critical to building up my own self-belief. So after the exit, did you yeah. see it through, like work for Brandwatch for a bit as well? Or yeah, did you, so Brandwatch you know? was based in Brighton, is based in Brighton. And so I was commuting from London to Brighton a couple of days a week. That is a long, it was a long, <laughs> long journey. And then we started building uh, a London office for the company with the peer index folks who had moved over. But yeah, I mean, it was like too many cooks, right? They had yeah. a good, they had a great CEO. Giles is amazing. You know, they had a Zeme in the organization. They had a CTO. They had a COO. I was like, there's too many C's in this organization for me to really stick around. So I was doing product development for them for, them for some time. And then I was like, actually, you don't really need me here. Mm. And I had, I had an Excel, what's called an accelerated vest. So my equity didn't have an earnout or significant earnout or anything like that. So I was like, you really don't need me here. I'm going to walk. I'm out, yeah. And everybody was very, very um, supportive. Giles and I were emailing this week, and now it's, you know, whatever, seven years after that exit. So, um, so yeah, so, so it, was, it was fine. Mm -hmm. And it was an ability to say, I mean, Azim stuck around for a little bit longer. He had more equity in the business, had to do the earnout. Of course. All of that, and saw that through. But for me, it was like, okay, I can, I can move on. Mm -hmm. And started advising other entrepreneurs, started figuring out what I was gonna do, went back to, to teaching a little bit at LBS and doing some stuff for King. How did that happen? Did, you, did they reach out to you? Uh, so what happened in a nutshell was Seed Camp started hiring entrepreneurs and residents. Mm -hmm. I went and was like, oh, that's an interesting thing. How do I become one of these? And they're like, we're full. <laughs> I was like, thanks. Um, but what they did, one of the people um, who was put in this entrepreneur in residence role, uh, Keith, Keith's last name, but he uh, circulated an opportunity to me that King's College was looking for an entrepreneur in residence. And so I became the first entrepreneur in residence for this King's program because of that introduction. Yep. 
And then I was, you know, as a result of that, I found that I was actually pretty good in front of a student crowd helping and all that. So Kings would give me opportunities with professors at like UCL or Imperial or um, Burbeck, Burbeck and stuff like that. And then I purposefully went to LBS and was like, hey, a year after that, I was like, hey, I've been teaching at all these other London institutions, but I actually went to this one. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if I did something? And I kept this relationship with one of my professors, Keith Willey. Um, who then introduced me to the assistant dean at London Business School, Julian Birkinshaw. And he just so happened to be working on building an elective. Oh, nice. And he was like, I'm looking for somebody who's got practical experience in this space. And I was like, here I am. <laughs> and so, you know, it was a little bit of luck and serendipity. I mean, it was manufactured in that I took the actions, but I was lucky in that it was the right time mm. that they were looking for somebody to build this. Yeah, it's like you also have to... Um raise your advert to say that yeah, I yeah. have this if you guys need it yeah because yeah. yeah you don't want to complain say oh why didn't they reach out to me you have to put yourself in that opportunity yeah. the opportunity might not exist but you have to put yourself in that vicinity of the opportunity and that's what I did mm-hmm. so I was like hey can I do is there something I can do and, and it's just right place right time make mm-hmm. the connection and then I had to kind of like do the work yeah right? so we wrote a couple of cases we delivered the course it went well that way it becomes like, okay, let's keep doing this. Mm. So so I read one of your um, articles, which yes. was Don't Be an Entrepreneur. Yes. And um, for listeners, it goes, don't be an entrepreneur if you're motivated by money. Yeah. Don't be an entrepreneur because you think it's cool. Don't be an entrepreneur because you don't like working for someone. You're always at someone's mercy. Yes. Don't be an entrepreneur if you're looking for something that will give you work-life balance. <laughs> don't be an entrepreneur if you think it's going to be a career that's suited to your personality. Don't be an entrepreneur if you're uncomfortable taking risks. Don't be an entrepreneur if you're not fully invested in solving the problem you're working on. Don't be an entrepreneur because you think it's a good career move. So why be an entrepreneur? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you have to be a glutton for punishment. (laughs) Because like everything from hiring when you don't have money, raising capital, getting customers to believe in your product. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why, you know, the, the flip side to that, don't be an entrepreneur for all these reasons. The only reason I think to be an entrepreneur is to build, to solve a problem, to solve something that you think needs to exist in the world, mm. right? If you don't have that fundamental belief that I need to work on this, that you know, kind of nobody's building this, and if I don't build it, I don't know if it will ever get built, then, then don't do it. I mean, like, I have friends who've told me great ideas for businesses, yeah. right? That have then gone on to become great businesses by other people, mm. right? And I'm like, cool, do it, man. If you fundamentally believe that you need to do this, it's execution. Yeah. Because it's hard. Yeah. I mean, you look at, you know, Will, the founder of Deliveroo, right? And I don't know him, but what I do know from, you know, kind of people who've been in that circle is that it's hard. You know, from starting the company and doing delivery runs yourself through to going public and then dealing with public markets, it's not an easy life. And I have friends who told me the exact idea for Deliveroo years before Deliveroo. And I was like, if you really feel the need to do this, do it. But you must feel it because it's painful. And I think that's the thing, right? It's like, there are so many easier ways to make money. Yeah, there are. <laughs> <laughs> like, so many. Yeah. And you you don't realize this until you're in it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that was the thing with my first business. It was like, that wasn't the thing that I was dreaming about in the bathroom, in the shower. It wasn't the thing, like, while I was at the gym. It wasn't the thing while I was just walking that was constantly in it. 
Mm. Right. Whereas like now what I'm doing, I feel like I'm constantly in it. It's the obsession kind of thing. You have to have that fundamental belief that I am the person who's going to solve this and this yeah. needs to get solved. Yeah. I love the, that, that aspect because there is that kind of madness yeah. in some of the biggest entrepreneurs. Like, um, I look towards Mr. Beast, for example. Yeah. I've never, throughout his whole rise, I never really paid attention to him until like last year because I just went into YouTube. But I started listening to some of his interviews, watching some of his, some of his videos, and he's a genius. He's incredible. And you can tell that he eats, sleeps, drinks, does everything content. around content, 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 content. and bring it up content. to the next level. Um, and it's that type of level of obsession that you need. And, I, and but then sometimes I'm like, where you have people who are more rational, can rational people make it big? Because there has to be a bit of a rationality somewhere. It's it's hard to say that there's like one shape fits all, right? Mm -hmm. Because like there's something about like even the average entrepreneur, right? And so, you know, we have this obsession with younger entrepreneurs. But when you look at, I think it's like there's some data and some research around IPOs and you know, kind of successful entrepreneurs, and like the average age is actually 45 when mm -hmm. start businesses. But when you look at, you know, the ages from like 25 to 60, you can find entrepreneurs at every one of those ages who've gone to build a great company. And so I don't think it's like a cookie. It's like, a you know, there's one type of obsession. There's one type of execution because there are other factors that come into play, right? Like if you're building something in a regulated industry, in pharma, in fintech, in other sectors, having some of the resilience or having some of the gray hair or having some of the experience or having some of the network is going to be super important. For sure. Right? So when you see, you know, kind of BioNTech, mm. right? And you see their deal with Pfizer and the COVID vaccine and that growth and the entrepreneurial story of the immigrant founders who started that, you know, kind of mRNA, you know, kind of vaccine business, those people had to have PhDs. They had to have kind of the data and the research backgrounds. They had to be people who were going to build this. Mm -hmm. And they probably were, you know, super obsessed with the science part of that. And you look at them and you compare them to a Mr. Beast, very different personas, very different individuals, very different teams, very different cultures, very different, you know, kind of everything, right? But what they have in common is that they both felt the need to build. They both felt the need to create. They both felt the obsession around, we're going to solve this problem. Mm. So what's the like key lessons that you teach your students when it comes to entrepreneurship? Well, you know, I don't really... So I'm teaching technology and innovation strategy this mm. year for the MBA program. It's the first time I'm teaching that. Usually I'm teaching uh, managing a digital organization, which is like fundamentals of digital organization. So things like APIs and building on top of legacy systems and things like that. Because there's a lot of like core technology that I wish I had learned. Yeah. And nobody's built that curriculum, so I get to build that curriculum. From a technology and innovation strategy perspective, you know, what I am teaching them is that you can still be creative without taking some of those entrepreneurial risks. Like, not that there's anything wrong with entrepreneurship and that a lot of people should be entrepreneurs. In fact, you know, I'm, I'm keeping it my business to back great entrepreneurs um, and build the people or back the people who will back those entrepreneurs. But at the same time, it's, you know, there's a lot of creativity, a lot of innovation that happens in large organizations, right? And how do you build cultures? How do you think of organizations? Because most people who graduate from business school will still go on to work for large companies. Maybe a small portion will go on to be entrepreneurs and hopefully some of them will be successful. But how do you enable even those individuals who go to work for the Fords or the Amazons or whatever to still be entrepreneurial in those organizations. And so what I'm trying to kind of teach is 
here are some ways to think about markets. Here are some ways to think about competitive landscapes. Here are some frameworks to kind of use. I have no idea how much of that goes in. <laughs> but what I do remember is that there are certain things that I learned throughout my experience doing business school that still come up. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that what I'm doing now is going to give them some of those tools that when they're presented with something, their gut has kind of changed to the point where they, even if they don't remember that it was in my class where they learned this framework, something in the back of their minds or in their guts or whatever is allowing them to make better decisions. Awesome. That's, that's what it's all about. Awesome, I like that. So um, how did becoming a VC come about? Like, was that on the cards, do you reckon? Not at some point. really. Yeah. So, um, well, so Anthemis were investors in Peer Index, uh, post the earnout, post kind of advising other companies and trying to kind of stay involved in startups. Um, I had actually another job offer. Mm -hmm. uh, that job offer was back in Canada. They needed 10 references. 10. 10. <laughs> Canadians are weird like that. Um, and two of the people that I was going to ask for references were Anthemis folk. And somebody, I think it might have been Azim, but somebody said, you know, Anthemis has been looking for somebody like you. So when I asked them for reference, I also kind of asked a couple other people who I knew there, what's going on with this? And they're like, can you come in tomorrow mm. to have a chat with us about this particular thing? And what had happened was they had a relationship with BBVA, Spanish bank, to build a fund for pre-seed investing, and they needed somebody to run it. And they needed somebody who understood early stage company building. And so Sean, who's the founder and uh, CIO, he you know, had a really frank discussion with me because I was like, I don't know about fintech. I really don't know about financial banking. <laughs> banking scares me. <laughs> and he was like, we'll teach you what you need to know about financial services. But company building and investing, he was like, I think you'll be good at it. And it was a great, great opportunity. And I went in and for four years ran a fund, um, deployed a small amount of capital, made some investments, sat on the boards of these companies. And it wasn't something that I purpose, I thought that would be like my retirement career, it would yeah. be like angel investing. I thought I'd be a hugely successful entrepreneur and then I'd go into investing. Um, but what they gave me was an opportunity to deploy other people's capital. Um, and it was great. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I enjoyed sitting, I mean, it was hard though because as an entrepreneur myself, you're kind of like optimistic and you're trying to see the reasons why things will win. Yeah. And I think what I've realized that in venture, um, this is what I think some of the best people in venture are good at, is being able to say why it won't. Oh, interesting. You're able to kind of say, I don't think this is going to And a lot of times you'll be wrong, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, Fred Wilson, who's at Union Square Ventures, uh, I think still keeps a box of Airbnb cereal that they made. It was uh, the Obama O's or the McCain foods or whatever. Because <laughs> they made this because they were running out of money. Yeah. And uh, they tried to raise money from Union Square and he passed. And he still keeps that box in because he's like, ah, you'll miss them. Yeah. And I think that's fine. Having a good anti-portfolio, totally okay. I've got a few where I was like, I wish I'd done that deal. Yeah. Right? But for whatever reason, you don't do that deal. But you have to be kind of comfortable with saying no to things. Mm. And I think for me, I found that really hard. Yeah. I want entrepreneurs to win. You want them to be successful. You want to help them. Yeah. That's, what, that's what being a VC kind of takes. It's like being able to say, eh. Not right. No, now. not right for me. Mm. It's interesting as well because of your background. It's like yeah. you're a different type of VC. Yeah, you're not like past banking, investment banking, or whatever. You actually which is which is a very now. European kind yeah. of venture. You, you see more, right? So I think in 2013, 2012, 
you know, Hussein and a couple others, Bill Erner, there's a few that were kind of like operators or weren't the investment banking type mm-hmm. um, VCs, but there were so many who just came from that sector. Mm-hmm. Now, now I think you, you know, there's, there's a lot of people in Europe now who were operators mm. and have turned VC. What learnings of being an entrepreneur and also operator did you apply to being an, as a VC? So I think um, being empathetic is one, right? Like asking founders and trying to give them some way to not burn out, yeah. right? And figuring out like what's going on. You know, you're not an HR professional, right? Which gives you a little bit of leeway, right? Which means that, you know, there, there are things around their personal life which are going to impact the entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying it's right when, for example, you know, I've had female founders who get asked about if they're going to have a baby and stuff. That shit's bullshit. Yeah. Sorry for cursing. But, you know, that stuff... I hate, but it's like certain things around like, you know, kind of, are you sleeping well? Yeah. Right. It's not something you would necessarily ask in a job interview, but it's something as an investor, you want to know like, Hey, are you like, okay. Mm. Right. And I think that's something that I care about as, cause I knew that was the thing that's, that I suffered from. It's like just that social mental burn of being an entrepreneur. And then there's other things, right? Like, are you getting a diverse group of people around you, hmm. right? Who do you have working with you that entrepreneurs don't necessarily think about, right? They think about, I just want to have the people I like working with me on this. And sometimes you're like, you're going to miss opportunities. You're going to miss kind of sales channels. You're going to miss distribution opportunities if you don't have a diverse group of people um, around you. So things like that, I kind of brought to the table, right? Hmm. My own kind of learnings, my own mistakes, right? Before I was able to say, hey, you're going to need more capital than you think, yeah. right? Think through kind of what you're doing. Think through how you're building your team. Think through how you're building your product. Mm. There was a lot of that stuff that I learned by doing things the wrong way that I was able to sense check mm. the entrepreneurs that I was backing. Did you have any like sense of imposter syndrome again? Did it bring up, did it come, up back, come back up? Yeah, I mean, I think it always does. You know, like um, you, you look at certain investors and you're like, oh my God, you know, these guys are amazing. Right? How do I compete? Do I, why am I in the same you know, kind of panel or whatever <laughs> else, right? But there's also, I mean, the, the good thing is that there's a lot of people, I think what you realize is that everybody has it, yeah. right? And it presents in very different ways in a lot of different cases. And once you get to that realization, right, that even the best investors have a little bit of imposter syndrome. Mm. You know, I know that there are people who are running billion dollar funds, who've built billion dollar companies, who still are like, you know, feeling like the person next to them in the cul-de-sac, wherever their house is, has achieved more. <laughs> and you're just like, really? <laughs> really? You, know, you built two billion dollar companies. Oh, the person next to you has built a $10 billion company. It's like, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that's that realization, right? Yeah. So having imposter syndrome, I think is something you learn to live with and you turn, learn to say okay it's it's okay it's gonna be all right i'm doing okay yeah it's it's it's, it's a good one um i think with a, as a vc or just as an investor in general it's you kind of have to be hard-headed but also listen to the consensus view in the sense of understanding your own conviction of if yeah. something's gonna work if it's not gonna work strongly held beliefs but weakly you know loosely held loosely strong held. strong strong, strong opinions, beliefs loosely held. held yeah yeah um i like that saying a lot yeah and i think it's something that as an investor was good Mm-hmm. As now, you know, what I'm trying to build from a fund to funds perspective with LTV capital is actually finding those people, right? I think like the difference in being an investor directly into companies is sometimes like, and I was guilty of this myself, it's like entrepreneurs take that no personally, yeah, 
Whereas with a GPLP relationship, when you're an LP or an investor in a fund, you, you don't have the opportunity to take it personally. You understand that sometimes it's markets, sometimes it's macro conditions, sometimes it's their own fundraising. And you still want to keep these relationships going because there might be other opportunities to collaborate. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of sets me up much better than kind of being an investor directly in companies, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Enabling people to invest is kind of the mission. Yeah, yeah. I like that. It seems one core theme like throughout your career has been the importance of networks. Yeah. Like opening doors, keeping those doors open, being like having those relationships. Yeah. 100. Were you purposeful in building these relationships or networks or it just happened? Less so early in my career. I think the tipping point was, um, I'd like to say LBS, but it was probably Yahoo, Mm -hmm. right? The LBS network I kind of lucked into and then took advantage of, you know, several years after LBS, but the Yahoo network, I was kind of like, oh, these are impressive people at that mid-tier, Yeah. right? Like I built so many relationships with like managers or developers or whatever else at Yahoo where I thought, okay, this is interesting. And that's where it started to kind of think through mm-hmm. that the importance around networks. And now I'm like, I have a, a friend, Erica Young, who was at Anthemus with me and who was at Atomico until recently and, and does some work for them still and does a lot of stuff with different programs. And she studies this immensely mm-hmm. i'm not a student of it but i'm a big believer of the fact that your network is going to be everything yeah how do you so someone who's trying to get their foot into the door like where do you go from just starting your network do you have to solve for like say brands or work in a big company or go to a big famous university or going to events is it just publishing more to build it you know you know i'm a big believer in a b testing Mm -hmm. and gathering data and that there is no one right way to do anything and i think that applies to networks as well i think there are certain individuals who will find events overwhelming Mm -hmm. but who will find you know online communities super one of the entrepreneurs i backed liad we had originally interacted on fred wilson's blog in the comments on Fred Wilson's blog. And then 10 years, maybe longer later, I found myself backing his company, <laughs> right? And it was really weird because we'd never met each other in person, but I distinctly remember his comments on Fred Wilson's blog. Yeah. So there's a number of different ways for you to build nodes or network links. Mm-hmm. And I think what you have to realize is that individuals will succeed or fail at building networks in different ways and so what works for me might not work for you but what i would say is like try everything especially when you're younger right and then see what feels comfortable Mm -hmm. right does it feel more comfortable to be at at an event and talking to founders does it feel more comfortable to you know kind of be in a reddit community right and be a part of that does it feel more comfortable to join you know kind of different groups online does it feel more comfortable to do educate more education? Does it feel more comfortable to do shorter programs? Does it feel more comfortable to do degree programs? You know, especially now when you've got things like Entrepreneur First and Zinc and other programs in the UK where people can kind of collaborate and work together and discover whether or not they want to be entrepreneurs mm-hmm. in a particular problem. You know, I think there are other ways to kind of build networks. Yeah. How do you keep in touch with your networks? You know, that's part of the teaching that I do is kind of allows me to then bring 
people in to guest speak, mm. right? And it's a nice way where even if there's no intention of working together or collaborating on a business concept or idea, keeping in touch yeah. on that front to say, hey, you know, you'd be great to come in as a speaker on this front. That's one way. You know, I try to use social media and social channels to kind of keep people updated and produce content and then see who's engaging and try to keep some viewpoint on what others are doing and stay aware and stay away and stay aware and stay connected to people. But I think what it also is, it's a little bit of intention around who are the hubs in your network and who are the spokes, mm. right? So kind of staying connected with specific hubs, knowing that they themselves have extended networks. That is such an interesting way to think about it. Right, so like thinking through, okay, there are, you know, if I was to name five to 10 people who I know themselves have phenomenal networks, mm -hmm. so staying in their orbit so that they also kind of bring you into other opportunities, you know, I think has been something that's worked for me. Mm -hmm. It's like be purposeful around who are my hubs and who are my spokes. Like yeah. There's people who I will help on specific things and I'm not expecting any kind of stuff back. And there's some people that I'm leeching on because <laughs> they are phenomenal at kind of like helping me kind of think through and connecting me to others. But I think there's a little bit of paid forward, right? There's people who probably look at me as a hub. And so I will do like the number of times I've met with people, even this week, and they'll say to me, I feel like you're doing a lot and I'm not doing that much, mm. right? Where they're, they're like, you're offering to intro this person, this person, that person, you've given me this advice and that advice. What can I do for you? I'm like, it's all right. You know, a lot of those times I'm like, I am having the exact same conversation <laughs> with somebody else and they are treating me in the same way. Yeah. Right. Where they're opening these doors. And I found that like, that's kind of my life philosophy is that there are people that I will be asking a lot of and that they will give me a lot. But in return, I might not give them as much, but I'm going to give it to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like it evens out in the universe. Mm. So you, you spend a lot of energy, like meeting people. How do you recharge? Like, <sighs> What's your go-to to recharge? Like, what do you do for yourself? I try to go to the gym. Mm -hmm. I try, I read a lot. I had two friends in business school who were like reading 40 books a year, you know, and they, they kind of like imprinted that on me. <laughs> so I make the time to read. Yeah. Um, love to travel. Uh, sometimes it's just downtime, like constantly listening to podcasts, constantly listening to music. Mm -hmm. Music is a big outlet um, for me. And when those things collide, it's great. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, do, I do a lot to, to recharge. Um, yeah, I mean, the gym is, is a big thing. You might not be able to tell. <laughs> but, um, you know, just, just spending some time in the gym, not think. I mean, work still comes in. Trying to meditate a little bit, not doing as well as I should be on that front. Mm. But yeah, you, you, you find your, your way. Yeah, I've, um, I relate because like, same with me, traveling, like, traveling. because I get so busy with work, it's easy for me to just deprioritize it but my wife won't let me so <laughs> she'll be booking she'll be booking the trips in my advance in, on, on my behalf and yeah. then music like especially I didn't realize how much of a cheat code it is where when you're feeling down or in a different yeah. place to listen to one of your favorite songs yeah. and it can help you just transform you to somewhere else I have playlists yeah. for certain events. I have a motivation playlist. I have mm -hmm. a gym playlist. I have a pre-class playlist oh, that nice. I play before that I know I'm teaching. So I'll listen to it. There's like five, 10 tracks mm -hmm. that I'll kind of- Just get like, you in the zone, Just right? get me in the zone. Yeah. Just get you in the zone. And then, yeah, even the gym as well. Like um, when I get stressed, I would not work out, which makes no sense. Oh, no. But then this year, I kind of gave myself like a challenge of doing 30 minutes of activity every single day. Yeah. So I'm on day like night you free nice. now. Um, 
yeah, I was listening to David Goggins at the beginning of the year, okay. and it just transformed. Like, there's, there's something about like habit. Yeah. Right. Like, even if you don't have a great workout, just getting in. Yes. Right. Like, so um, obesity runs on my father's side of the family, and you know, not great health and diabetes with my mom and stuff like that. And my dad died quite early, so I'm kind of like health. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's fundamental. It's like if you think about like Maslow's pyramid, right? Like one of the fundamental things that I will not be able to learn. And health is definitely yeah. kind of up there. And then it, it impacts your mental health. It impacts your energy and all of that mm-hmm. as well. Awesome. So um, you mentioned LTV. So what's yes. next? What's next for you? So I'm building LTV Capital. Yep. Um, more news to come on that. But what we're looking at is a lot of the principles that I was developing in the later time with Anthemis around investing in funds and fund managers thinking about the ecosystem, thinking about how to help people in their career as venture investors. You know, when you asked me that question about how I ended up at venture, a lot of it was luck, a lot of it was opportunity, a lot of it was people, right? Giving me those opportunities. It's like, how can I replicate that flywheel for others? Um, just because I think venture is quite an opaque industry to get into. So I want to make that a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. I want to make good venture. I want to make people, I want to help people be able to take advantage of their networks in order to become great investors. So that's that's the goal, is to kind of build something. And it's, you know, when I think about Adam Avengers to this journey now, you know, this feels more of an obsession. Mm-hmm. It's like more, there needs to be more equity in venture. There needs to be more capital given to people who deserve that capital. You know, kind of, when you look at the data and you look at kind of how emerging managers and smaller funds perform, and then you talk to LPs, and a lot of institutional LPs don't back first-time funds and they don't back small funds, you're like, that's incongruent. Mm. And so it feels like a fundamental problem that I'm working on now um, and something that's super exciting and, and you know, has me thinking about it all the time. No, oh, amazing. I'm excited to see that yeah. for sure. So I've got a couple quick yeah. fire questions Go for on. you before we end. So can you share a prediction Ooh. or a trend with me that might be considered controversial and or surprising? This could be within fintech or banking or anything in general. I'll go into AI. Um... I wonder if we're going to see the commoditization of deep tech AI expertise. So what I mean by that is as ChatGPT and other tools make it easier to almost co-pilot and build stuff on top of these frameworks and tools, will a lot of people who've gone and done deep research into machine learning or deep research into AI become commoditized as we get more tools Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. enable people? My daughter studied computer science in secondary school. And I remember her telling me... Secondary school? She's doing computer science in secondary school. And I remember her telling me she wanted to drop it. She didn't want to do it anymore. And I was like, why? You should stick with it. Stick with it. And she actually changed my mindset on this, where she said, I'm not sure if the stuff they're teaching me is going to be the stuff I'm going to use if I do decide to do this later on. Wow. And I was like, crap. <laughs> you know, it was like a good debate. It was like a good response, where even if she doesn't want to do anything related to computer science in the future, that kind of, that thinking of actually, it's changing so fast, and the skills you'll need in a few years' time, based on how quickly the tools are ramping up. Yeah. You know, that's the thing that, that I'm quite interested to see. Like, does it become super easy for my son, who's got a wicked imagination, to be able to kind of create based mm. on the tools that are around him? Yeah, because the tools now are crazy. Tools are crazy. It's so quickly as tools well. Tools are crazy. Mm-hmm. And when you think about, like, how easier it's becoming, you know, I've got um, 
I'm, I'm actually writing like individual exams for my business school students right now. And I'm using ChatGPT and I'm kind of inverting it. And what mm. I'm doing is I'm, I'm giving them the answer from ChatGPT and asking them to correct it or to say what things they would then ask ChatGPT in order to make the answers better. That is cool. And it's like that kind of stuff a year ago didn't exist. And I think we're going to keep seeing these changes and you're going to have to adapt or die. Mm. There's a thought I'm trying to articulate. It's like you're learning how to instruct yeah. and communicate to a computer in a way which is not verbiage. Because like when I use ChatGPT, for example, I can be lazy. <laughs> I'll be like, tell me this. But I realize you've got to be very, very specific and that just improves the quality of the answers that you get out of it. It's crazy. I mean, yeah. somebody told me today that... Um, the thing with some of these tools now is that the learning models have adapted so much in yeah. that it used to be that you would train the system on how to play a game mm -hmm. by playing the game. And it gives them a number of data points around playing the game. And now you can train the system by exposing it to literature about the game and it will learn off the literature wow. and then play the game at a high level. Okay, yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. That shit's crazy. Um, what's one book or podcast that you always recommend to people? Um, there's a number. Uh, I'm trying to kind of narrow it down. So I'll go book first. Mm -hmm. Hard Things About the Hard Things. Uh, that's an easy one. Um, I'm fascinated by Mariana Matsukata's from UCL, her thinking around entrepreneurship in the state and consulting as well recently. I think that's, that's some really good stuff. Um, yeah, I think those are, those are the ones that I'd probably recommend most. Um, if you're trying to get into venture, Brad Feld's books around venture deals and things like that as well. Podcasts, Invest Like the Best, mm -hmm. uh, underrated, super, super great podcast. Uh, Lex Friedman's podcast, if you've got three hours to kill on an episode. <laughs> uh, he's, he's, he's fun. He's a fun listen. Um, yeah, I think those are probably, I mean, I'm listening to like the Pivot podcast. I listen to um, All In um, with another fellow brand Canadian dude with Chamath. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's quite a few. I mean, I think the thing right now is you're spoiled for content. Yeah. There's just so much content. Cool. Listen to something. Listen to something. And um, lastly, yeah. if you had to go and do a song, a remix. A remix. Yeah. Who would be your song partner with it? Who would you do a remix with? All time? Dead All or Alive? Time. Dead or Alive. Any, no, no, no restrictions? No restrictions. I don't think we got enough of Aaliyah. Mm. I was in um, Westfield. My wife and I went on a date night last night, and I heard More Than a Woman by Aaliyah. Yeah. And so she's fresh in my mind. That's such a song. Such yeah. a great song. <laughs> and I remember being in Disneyland Paris when yeah. my, one of my closest friends called me to tell me Aaliyah had died. And I was just like... And so, like, she is one, I think, that just had so much more potential. And mm. we, got an, we got so much in just a short life. Agreed. I would love to do more, see more, produce more, have more of Aaliyah. Amazing. That would be one. My, my daughter also has an Aaliyah t-shirt. So <laughs> my, my wife takes credit for that one, which she should. So I'm assuming you're a singer. No. <laughs> Hell no. Uh, you know, I've, I've done karaoke <laughs> as far as I go. But, you know, I, I love music. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for Han. This has been amazing. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate the time. No, my pleasure.